when people say, oh, you know, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do that. But it's like, well, what's the point of journalism if you're not going to hold power accountable? It doesn't matter who's in power. You have to hold them accountable. And also, and not just people in power, but also people with big, who are influential, have a platform. They need to be held accountable as well. Because like I said, language is a minefield. And some of the stuff they say or don't say has a big impact on human rights, on, on civil rights movements and how people are perceived in the media. And yeah, it's just, I think that is more important than worrying about the consequences because we're all, as Palestinians, we're already suffering the consequences just being Palestinian. Hello everyone and welcome to Chai with Rai, a life and culture podcast diving into the mindset and business of being a creative. I'm your host Raya and each week I bring you a guest or a fruitful message from the creative industry all while sipping and spilling some hot chai. Why? Because all good things happen around a hot cup of chai. Now, if you haven't done so, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. If you love this podcast and are listening to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, or wherever you are streaming this podcast from, if you could do me a kind favor and make sure to rate the podcast down below and share it on your stories on social and spread the word. It organically grows the show and connects us with listeners who haven't tuned in before. And overall, as I always say, it just shares the love. Also, if you haven't done so already, you can now become a patron, aka a supporter of Chai With Rai, by signing up on Patreon for £5, or as I love saying it in this accent, $5.50. Each month, your subscription will help support the show, but also get you exclusive BTS footages, that is behind the scenes footages and some extra juicy bits. I will put the link for the Patreon channel as well as all the other info in the description of this episode, so make sure to check that out. So without further ado, let's warm up our cuppers and let's dive into today's episode. Pierce, let me know what you're sipping on as you listen to this episode, because I'm looking for some inspiration for hot winter drink. And let's welcome writer, journalist, editor, the person, the genius person that is behind this Arab is Queer, which is a wonderful anthology of queer Arabs. I will link, by the way, the book in the description of this episode, Ilias Jahshan. Nowhere do I know the story of your marriage, so we might get into it, because I'd be interested to hear how sure, you guys yeah, met. Sure, sure, sure. That'd be really cute, just to hear. Yeah, no, my husband's not a journalist. He's a social worker, but he's also a musician as well. So he's got he's kind of got his feet in two worlds, very different worlds. One's like social work is quite a heavy, demanding job, and um, music is his like his like escape. So he's a choir leader. He's got he runs to community choirs in London, in different areas of London. And yeah, and he he used to be part of this big excuse me, he used to be this part of this big feminist led uh, choir that had like about two hundred members. They used to perform at Glastonbury a few every year, and there was. One one year, the last year that he went to Glastonbury with the choir, he was actually, he actually led the whole group in a performance and stuff. So that was really exciting. I mean, they didn't have any of the main stages or anything, but like, they were part of the Glastonbury entertainment lineup, but it was very much more about the interaction with the crowd. I mean, there's so much happening in Glastonbury anyway. It's a pretty big deal. Like I go around saying, yes, my husband performed at Glastonbury. So, <laughs> no. <laughs> I am married to a rock star. Kind of big deal. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Those kind of vibes. <laughs> So he's just going around practicing his singing pitches and you're just there. At the moment, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I used to be able to see go to his performances all the time and used to enjoy it all the time. And I mean, he plays the piano. My, my, my husband's main instrument is the piano and he also plays the guitar very well as well. But he knows other instruments, but they're, they're his two main instruments. Yeah. Every now and then, he'll still practice his piano regularly and plays his guitar regularly. And he's always like a nice background music in the apartment. But for the past two, you haven't been able to hear it because the sound frequencies for music is so complex that my level of hearing loss just doesn't grasp it anymore. 
So that's another reason why I'm getting cochlear implants. So yeah, but yeah, I mean, music's a big part of his life and it's a big part of my life as well. So you sing? No, I don't sing. No, no, I'm like, no, I'm more, of, I'm more, I enjoy the experience of music and I enjoy, I love listening to music. I'm not really a singer. No, no. Have you tried? I have tried. I'm like the worst thing you'll ever hear. <laughs> what is your go-to karaoke song or what's your go-to song? The last time I did karaoke, I was very inebriated and I did <laughs> Jailhouse Rock from Elvis Presley. It's a good one. I figured like, he's got a deep voice. I've got a deep voice. And there must have been some sort of drunken logic behind that. <laughs> did you guys do a duet at your wedding? Because that would be really nice. No, 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 no. We didn't do that. No way. No, 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 no. We didn't. <laughs> He'll he he just he'll just out he'll just out take take over the spotlight because he sings really well. I can't. <laughs> That's kind of like one of my friends. She's a really really good dancer, and she tried to teach her husband how to dance on the wedding day. They're walking in, and she literally pushes him aside and does a dance. <laughs> I was like, wow, you are really doing a solo dance for your couple dance. Yeah, my husband and I actually met in a dance class, actually. So, Oh. Yeah, I just moved to London about, well, just over seven years ago. And I joined this dance class, an amateur dance class thing called the Gay Men's Dance Class. I used to teach for the Gay Men's Dance Class. Yeah, yeah, GMDC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we were in the same class uh, We we when they used to have class. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if they still do. They have classes in Chiswick. And um, that's where I met my husband. And we were paired up for one of the end of term showcases for the waltz routine. That's what we had to perform together. And that's kind of how we got to know each other. And then here we are. <laughs> Would you mind me asking who asked out who first? Apparently I did, which is like a very, which is a very, I mean, I don't remember. It must have, must have come out so normally and naturally. I didn't think twice. Usually when I ask them, I, I just get I just get so anxious and overthink and get into a rabbit hole and nervous and say something stupid. Instead, I think with Aaron, it just came naturally. And then, yeah, it was just no dramas at all. No overthinking. It just happened. Yeah. And who, I think this is the most important thing. Who said I love you first? Um, He did. Yeah, yeah. Was it reciprocated or was it like? Oh, it was, it was definitely, yeah, it was, it was definitely reciprocated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very London thing as well. It happened on the tube, on the central line. <laughs> like, <laughs> so when you celebrate now your anniversary, do you celebrate first date, first time you met, or the first time you kissed? The wedding, the wedding anniversary. The wedding anniversary. Yeah, got it. yeah, got it. Yeah. And was it a big wedding or a small wedding? It was a very small wedding. Just a, some of our, our close family and friends here in London. Uh, uh, Wandsworth Town Hall. We went to a pub afterwards, and that pub, by pure chance, had a DJ, and we just had we it had music without even having to worry about hiring a DJ. It was right there. It was great. Saved a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We had no idea. It was like pure luck. All of our friends were asking, "Who's this DJ? He's really great." We're like, "We don't know." <laughs> <laughs> Weddings are expensive, so yeah. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. so, all right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So, should we start with the games? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yep. Yep. So the games are rapid response. So okay. I'll just ask you questions and you just give to me as quickly as possible. So your first question is three things you miss about Australia and three things you don't. My family, my close friends and the sunshine. What don't you miss? The politics. The traffic in Sydney is so far away. That is true. <laughs> where would you, but doesn't it have like holiday destinations where it's like really cold somewhere in Australia and somewhere really warm? I mean, we tend to go to Australia when it's winter here. There's a summer over there. So uh, escape the winter here, we get a summer in Australia. I mean, even if we go to, even if we go to Sydney where I'm from in winter, Sydney winter is like, 
late spring here. It's not that cold. I mean, even the, even the coldest month of winter, which is July, August, it rarely ever drops below 10 degrees during the day. So it's we single digit is coldness is usually only in the evening. But even then, it's only for like two or three weeks of the year. Every other time, it's like double digit. And also winter in Sydney. People think go to Sydney in summer, which is amazing, but it's so humid and hot in Sydney. It's ridiculous. I love <laughs> humid and hot. I went to Philippines. I don't mind the warmth. I hate the humidity. So the humidity is what gets me. But whereas if you go to Sydney winter, it's even it's drier. It's the more perpetually perennial sunny days in winter than there are in summer. And it's really nice. It's just like it's bright sunshine. It's not like the winter here where the sun is so far away. You stand there, you still can't feel the warmth. You can actually get some warmth from the sun in the winter in Sydney. All yeah. right. Next question. Three things you would spend your money on if you won the lottery today. Okay, this is going to sound very adult. I'll buy a house. Go on holidays and donate some money to like queer Palestinian groups. I thought you were gonna say invest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, invest is not really something. I'm, I'm not really that adult. <laughs> but buying a house is being an adult, though. <laughs> okay. Next question. Say in three ways you have to say you're hungry without saying the words "I'm hungry." Um, I get snappy. And I'm constantly rummaging through the pantry or the fridge. I'm talking about food without even explicitly saying that I feel like eating that. If that makes sense. I got it. I got it. I get hungry like crazy. <laughs> have you had breakfast? Yes, I have. Yes, yes, yes. What did you have? I don't know if you've heard of um, it's Manaish. It's like a Lebanese-style pizza. But you have it for breakfast. You put za'atar on it. And olive oil and za'atar. It's like a, it's an, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a delicacy. But I grew up eating that for breakfast on Sunday. And there's a place here in Fulham, not far from where, that does delivery. So we all got on delivery and they delivered for us. It was great. It kind of sounds a little bit like the Turkish pizzas that we have. Yeah, yeah, almost. Yeah, I think the Turkish pizzas are different shape though. It's yeah. like the diamond, which is like a normal round pizza. And it's just like oregano and thyme, a herb mix with olive oil and they bake it. And then that's it. Ah, well, I'm having pizza in the night. So yeah, yeah. I'll add Zatar to it. Um, <laughs> next question. Three journalists, every emerging writer should research or dive into their work. Okay, definitely the one journalist with all work, Yara Age, she's a well-known journalist from Gaza. Uh, Mohammed Al-Kurd, he's a obviously well-known journalist from Sheikh Jarrah. There's so many Palestinian journalists. I feel bad just naming three of them. And there's a few, there's, one, there's another uh, journalist in uh, Gaza who's quite well-known, uh, Maltaz. The surname escaped me but he's all over social media at the moment um doing like all of filming on his drone and stuff like that freelance journalists as well so i think uh, those three journalists are people should look into their work uh, more often okay if you want to send their stuff to me i can link them in the description later on okay, that would be amazing yeah i'll do that yeah. yeah all right last two questions Three cultural experiences that you feel have shaped your life to be the person that you are today. Living in France for one year when I was 20, 21, 21 22 years old for university. I was there for a year of uni exchange. That completely transformed me in so many ways. But that's going over five seconds. Um, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. Keep going. I basically, I basically, it basically gave me a chance to get come out of my shell and really learn so much about myself completely out of my comfort zone. Yeah, so there was that. And um, I learned a bit of French as well. And I've traveled around Europe at the time. And that was when I first came to London, fell in love with London and put a seed in my mind that I wanted to live here. And here I am 
10, 10 years after my first visit to London, I ended, ended up moving here. The second uh, thing that changed my cultural experience was when I actually went to visit Lebanon and Palestine, where my parents were from. That was a very, very eye-opening experience, and it kind of made me more proud of who I am. Yeah, maybe more comfortable in my own skin as well, but also very eye-opening, especially when I went to Palestine. It was a very eye-opening experience, and it made, it kind of, in some ways that radicalised me a little bit. Actually, not a little bit. Very much so. The third one, I'm not exactly sure, to be honest. I guess just being in London, I feel like I'm being, living in London. It's actually an international global city. It's the centre of the world. It's such a diverse city. Mm. You get so many cultural experiences, cultural contacts, I guess. That doesn't sound right. But yeah, there's, there, where I never really had that in Sydney because it's so far away. So in the culture there, it's very parochial. People seem to more care about their own backyard more than the world. Whereas in London, and I know it's not the same for the rest of the UK, but London specifically is definitely a bubble, no doubt about it. Yeah. But just having that, just living here, it just feel like, you know, how got these connections with the world and have people from all over the world come here live here visit whatever and there's so much history a lot of it is bad a lot of it is good it's almost like you're in the you're in the belly of the beast in some ways yeah i guess having that experience here just really made me realize how small the world is in, in so many ways but at the same time how wonderful it is because yeah just had, i just it just really helped me grow as a person i would think you would say getting married but apparently not well, yeah, I guess. I feel like more <laughs> of a lot of passage in some ways. It's not really a cultural thing. That is true. Yeah, that is very true. Yes, I should have reshaped the question. <laughs> Unless your wedding was a culture. No, no, it wasn't. Not this one. No, no, uh, no it was very low-key. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Well, you said not this one. Does that mean you were married before? No, 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 no. We're, we're planning to sort of... We're, we're planning to hopefully have a follow-up celebration in Sydney. And make that more of a cultural experience, because that way all all of my family and all of my friends can come, and Aaron's family can fly over and make a holiday out of it, and we'll actually actually do a proper wedding ceremony, and and you know, have the Arabic music and the big drums and the fireworks and the O O T T big cake with the sword, whatever, and belly dances. So that would be that's the that was the plan. But we're planning to do it like about two or three years after that we had our wedding, but the pandemic struck, and then we were like, okay, we can't we can't even go back to Australia. So now we're like, oh, you know, we'll just wait until our ten year anniversary. We have a delayed celebration or something. It gives us more time to save money as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> would you guys ever move back to Australia? At the moment, no, no. <laughs> but for both of our works, London is better paid for it, especially for journalism. Like, media in Australia is very, very small and concentrated in terms of ownership. It's not much diversity. And not much diversity in the newsrooms either. I'm not saying the UK newsrooms are that much better, but like, it is better than Australia. Yeah, so, and I feel like there's more opportunities here for both of our works as well, so, yeah. I always find that interesting when people escape, let's say for lack of a better word, smaller spaces to come to cosmopolitan or developed spaces to kind of like thrive. But then I'm like, what about the economy and the growth that needs to happen? Yeah, you're right. I mean, for me... It wasn't so much about the economy or anything. It was more about just how I felt in Sydney. Like Sydney is a big city. It's about four million, four and a half million people. But I still felt like a small, fi big fish in a small pond. And I come here, I'll completely like a small fish in a big pond here, literally. And um, I, said, I feel like that challenge was, yeah, it was a good challenge for me. It's something I needed. And it's not something I'm really ever, me going back to Sydney in that smaller pond. It just doesn't seem appealing to me as a person. As, Got it. Okay, your last question. In a podcast, Matt Keynes meets Virgin Radio, you talk about a story coming out 
your mom, your family and everything. And there's this memory that you share about your husband and you on a couch. I can't remember the specifics of it, but he's hungry. And your mom says, what can I cook? Or she opens up the fridge or something along those lines. So with that in mind, I would love to know what are three food dishes that your mom cooks that you're just like, she does a really good uh, which is a, a traditional, more Lebanese dish, but we eat it in Palestine as well. It's basically just ground meat with bulgur wheat and onion mixed together with some spices. And you can shape it however you like. Commonly, you see on Lebanese restaurants the shape of like a football with stuffed with meat inside it. Kind of looks like meat, meat parcels, basically. But the way we eat at home, you put it in a tray, it's flattened it out. And then you put like the, what you would see inside the football-shaped meat parcels will be like in the middle layer. And then you put like another layer that could burn top. It's like a meat loaf in some ways, but very thin meat loaf tray. And then the way, and then you put diamond-shaped patterns on top of it to make it look pretty oh. and, the, and there's meat stuffing that's in the middle it's got pine nuts and onions and spices as well and usually lamb and you have that with salad or in a bit of yogurt as well one thing my husband really learned when he started when he married me is how, how often we eat plain greek style yogurt with almost anything and everything as if it's like a condiment for us and it's, and it's just it's just it's not it comes naturally you have any it's, the spices just go really well with it so yeah there's that's my mom does a really good job with that. She also does a really mm. great, another Lebanese uh, dish called jaj um, alaruz. It's basically chicken on, literally translated chicken on rice. But she does it, she marinates the chicken and garlic until like you, you have garlic breath for days. Then you, you bake the chicken. And then when the rice is like, you know, like normal basmati, long grain rice, lamb, spices, and um, it's got a bit of, bit of a cinnamon, cinnamon flavor to it. But then you have the garlic, chicken and the rice together and you put it on top with some like, uh, roasted almonds and pine nuts on top and also the yogurt on the side it's like it's like that for me i think that is like english people have got sunday roast that's my mum's version for sunday roast it's such comfort food for me there's that and mum also does a really really good tabbouleh and i mean it's almost like a way to judge a lebanese chef or any lebanese cook is how good their tabbouleh is and how good their hummus is yeah. My mom's hummus is amazing. But my mom's tabbouleh <laughs> is like, it's like the benchmark for me. Every time I go to a Lebanese restaurant or anywhere, if their tabbouleh is not as good as my mom, instant fail. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I know it's a bit of a stereotype. Tabbouleh is such a typical Lebanese thing. But I just like, my mom actually does a really fucking good job at it. It's to, to the point where my nephews and nieces constantly ask my mom to make it whenever they have birthday parties. Mom, can you make some like a small bowl of tabbouleh for my friends and whatever? My mom makes a big bowl and take it up. <laughs> We have that. I think also, what is it? In some households, you have like, is it Tadi? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Some, my mom actually, that's a good question. There's in in uh, Palestinian uh, food, it's, it's more palatable, Matlube, which is like similar rice thing you turn upside down. Matlube literally means turn upside down. And yeah, that's, that's more of a Palestinian dish. My, 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 the recipe my mom does is she learned it from my grandmother, my dad on my dad's side. And that's something I make here quite often as well. It's like a big stereotypical thing. It's like the whole spectacle of turning upside down, people waiting with bated breath, whether it's going to stand or collapse. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's great. Are you a good cook? I would like to say so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's better, you or husband? I'm much better. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask him. I'll ask him after we finish interviewing. You bring him over and I'll be like, who's better? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is he a better baker 
Oh, he's he's actually a better baker than me. Yes, he is. Yeah, yeah. And my he's a better baker, and he he, he can do like he does the he does the mean uh, Sunday roast as well. So he he had to he had the strengths definitely. Um, <laughs> but overall, I'm the better cook. Let's put let's, no doubt. No, no, There's no, no doubt. <laughs> I feel like in relationships, it ends up being cook. Or baker. Oh uh, yeah, true. I never thought of that actually. You're right. Yeah. 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 But yeah, Alan's definitely the better baker than me. So yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Should we get into the main deep conversations? Which in all of my research, which is very limited because you have a lot of stuff, and I was very intimidated by <laughs> how much there was. So apologies. Don't be it's okay. <laughs> I'm intrigued to know, I couldn't find what made you get into journalism. I guess the reason why I got into journalism, I remember as a kid, I used to tell my parents I wanted to be an author, I wanted to be a writer and stuff. Coming from an immigrant background, my parents were like, that's great, but you need to have something with constant, steady income first, and then you can become a writer after that. So I was like, okay, what can I do? And there was not much option apart from being a journalist. Yeah, I guess that seemed like the natural thing, because that means you do get to write, and the idea of being a journalist means you, you're not stuck at the desk all the time. You're always out and about meeting people, writing stories. And that was most of my career before I be, before I became, got into the senior levels of being at an editor level. But yeah, it was just like, it was definitely something that was, the element of writing was definitely what attracted me to journalism. But I think also the underlying subconscious thing that got me into journalism, I only realized this as I became an adult, was that I was a huge fan of Superman when I was a kid. The cartoons, the Lois and Clark on TV, the movies, I was a massive Superman nerd. And I wonder if that was like some sort of influence in my decision making to become a journalist. I don't know. I mean, I never, I never thought about having superheroes, but um, superhero powers. I mean, but it was just, I just, I do wonder if that have, having that rub off on me sort of made an influence. But I think also that once, once I just get into journalism, once I did sort of gain experience in the industry, I realize when I mean, you learn about it in university, because I did a journalism course at uni. But learning about it in theory is different for what it is once you, once you put it to practice. And one of the things I realized is like you know. You get so much responsibility that comes with the use of language and um and the power that you have in being able to wield that language and what you publish and the information you disseminate to the public. And yeah, I mean it's it's a minefield. And I think with that, I've sort of been like, okay, this is something I can use to my advantage as someone of Palestinian background and you know, share our stories because we don't we are quite often ignored or overlooked or demonized in the media. So I feel like, you know, in many ways having those skills helps and to sort of cut through the BS that you see about the Palestinian narrative in the, in Western media. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm the only person. There's so many of us doing a better job than I am, way better job than I am doing it. So I think that all those kind of combined is a sort of like solidified my decision into being in journalism. I can't see myself doing anything else. I'm always, my work is always going to involve some sort of writing. It's always going to involve some sort of political element. It's always going to involve some sort of expression of my intersectional identity as gay, Arab, Palestinian, deaf even. How did you, I'm interested to know that knowing the trajectory of journalism, how did you find your voice? in terms of what you're saying right now, which is gay, Palestinian, all of these things, like how, because the assignments at the start is like, go cover this. I think the voice I found, because initially for the first five years of my career, I was working in suburban newspapers journalism, and there wasn't much I could do in that regard and to sort of finding my voice as a Palestinian. I was actually too busy learning how to be a journalist and learning that skill of the grassroots journalism skill that I needed. First. And it was definitely worthwhile. It wasn't until I sort of 
went to the Middle East and sort of became radicalized and came back. I don't mean radicalized as in like some extremist religious person, by the way, just for clarity. <laughs> I mean, politically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just realized about how much people might misinterpret that. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Um, it, and then and they came back and then, um, yeah, and then I, shortly after I became editor of the Star Observer. Or not shortly, maybe two years after that, I became editor of Star Observer, and which is the longest-running queer media outlet in, in Australia. Then I was the first editor from a non-English-speaking background in that publication's history. That was probably when I really found my voice as a gay journalist, I guess, and the responsibility I had as a you know POC gay journalist in queer media, which is very, very, dom- very much dominated by cis gay white men and the, the views and the lens in which the stories are reported often come from cis gay white men. So I realized, that was when I realized, okay, I've got an opportunity here to sort of challenge that and shake the tree a little bit and make people realize that our community is actually really diverse. And, you know, let the mainstream media go gangbusters on the whole marriage equality debate. Let them have that. I don't care. Let them have that. We'll report on it, yes, but let them focus on it like if it's the only thing that affects our community. I realize there are other stuff in our community that mainstream media ignored. And quite often there's like stigma around HIV and the transphobia that's prevalent um, in that affects trans people, not just in the um, mainstream community, but also within the queer community as well. And also the racism that is in within the queer community, especially in Australia, like racism is a big thing, especially casual racism, not easy speaking up about it as someone who's POC, because you often get shot down because you're not playing by the rule of being the, of being the good immigrant. And I think that's an experience, that's a universal experience with someone, for a lot of people from POC backgrounds in the Western world. But I feel like, yeah, it's, I, feel like I did shake the tree in many regards in that way. So I think that helped me find my voice as a gay journalist. But also, at that same time, that was when I discovered these queer Arabic music parties in Sydney called Club Ara. And it was, just, it was like it's my favourite night. It's still my favourite club night of all time. I don't know if that's because I'm getting old. I'm very, very nostalgic of it. But it is still <laughs> an amazing night. I think that helped me realise that there's a community out there of people like me that they were just which didn't have much representation in the media if at all but in australia at least like i said before the mentality in australia is very parochial i know i realize now there's definitely some space for in the in the around the world but australia was very very much ignored not much space was given to us at all so yeah and then i think that's how i found my voice i guess if that answers your questions as a as a journalist who sort of i say laps up doesn't make the work who sort of i don't say capitalizes on it either but sort of like um my work in through my work, a lot of my work is inherently political because of my intersectional identity. Because of that, for those reasons I've told you, yeah, it's just yeah. That's <laughs> so I read a couple of your pieces of your work, so from like pinkwashing to the work that you did for Gay Times, which was the Tel Aviv piece that I you remember did, that, yeah, yeah, and some of your podcasts. And I'm interested to know whenever I have writers on is. How do you balance your unconscious, conscious biasness to tell the story that you need to? And in your case, balance these sort of like political and personal agendas that might end up having, for a lack of better word, a consequence? But that's the thing. I don't often think about the consequences. I just think about what needs to be told or what needs to be reported and what needs to be discussed urgently. I feel like that's more important than potential consequences. I do. I mean, of course, it's always in the back of my mind, but I feel like that's 
it's always going to be on the back of my mind as a Palestinian anyway. My existence is a threat to so many people. And not, not just as a Palestinian, but as a gay Palestinian. It, it, it threatens so many people's ideas of what it means to be and what it means to be Palestinian. For some people, they just can't compute these two things can, can go together. Yeah, I guess in some ways, and maybe, maybe that has stuff the consequences already. I just haven't realised it. Maybe maybe there have been times when I've applied for jobs and I've been rejected because someone looked up, went on to Google to see my name come up on all these things that they perceive as incriminating or too or too controversial so I, but I don't know and I guess you know I guess, I guess the, the, the stuff that's not said that's left unsaid that is for me is probably more telling of in terms of what consequences I of suffering so and it's not I, I don't know how to describe this I was following a a Palestinian filmmaker on Twitter and she was saying her name is Lexi Alexander and she was saying how so many times she'd pitched an idea to some Hollywood producers and what have you and then they'll say yep yep okay cool we'll discuss this and then they they go and then they don't hear from them again and this whole concept of what's not said what's left unsaid is more telling than what's actually said and it's just like it's in when you look at the context that they, they know that she's Palestinian they know the stuff that she's producing might not, necessarily, might not necessarily have anything to do with Palestine but they just know even they don't they, they're, they're not breaking any laws or they're not they they're, they're not coming across as you know discriminating because they're not saying anything and they can easily deny it true but still it's just like the, the whole idea of what's left unsaid it just it's in many ways plays into the whole gaslighting of palestinians that we experience all the time mm. so i know i'm going off on a tangent sorry but i think that does that does play on my mind a lot but the urgency to tell stories the urgency to share these stories is far more important than worrying about that and finding the space to share these stories and helping other people share their stories as well is really important to me as well because there's room at the, there's room at the table for everyone not just for one person but yeah and just finding ways to sort of hold people accountable for when their unconscious bias i mean of course i've got an unconscious bias when it comes to being pro-Palestinian solidarity. I am Palestinian myself. That bias is always going to be there. But I still know the basic practices of what what should, what you can and should, shouldn't do in terms of journalism and media. And um, I've been in, been in the industry for 15 years. I know how the media industry works. And so when people say, oh, you know, we shouldn't do that, we shouldn't do that. But it's like, well, what's the point of journalism if you're not going to hold power accountable? It doesn't matter who's in power. You have to hold them accountable. And also, and not just people in power, but also people with big, who are influential have a platform they need to be held accountable as well because like i said language is a minefield and some of the stuff they say or don't say has a big impact on human rights on civil, on civil rights movements and how people are perceived in the media and yeah it's just i think that is more important than worrying about the consequences because we're all as palestinians we're already suffering the consequences just being palestinian can i pick up on the question something that you just said sure. which is now having the experience that you have as a journalist, as an editor, as a curator, all of these things, do you ever reach out to publications and or journalists or people in high position or power and be like, hey, you could do better. Why are you not doing this? Or do you get pushback in regards to the stories maybe that you want to tell because certain publications are biased or left wing? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah I mean, I'm Look, I, to be honest, I've never really done that because I just don't want to waste my energy doing those sorts of things. Mm. <laughs> but I think it, it's more about the discussion that needs to be had. And there's definitely discussion happening already. I'm not leading it. We've, we're already seeing these sorts of discussions online and in, in the media as well. But at the same time, like, 
if I were to do that, then that would burn the bridge for me in terms of any opportunity I might want to have in the future with that publication. So it's the it's a tricky balance, and I, it's definitely a cop out. What I'm saying, I'm not going to deny it. I feel like I feel it's more constructive to talk about it and just sort of keep those discussions going rather than go after a particular person because when you do that, that person almost always is going to take it personally and make it all about them rather than look at it from a systemic institutional perspective. And it's really, it's, that's the challenge, just trying to make people in the, in the industry understand that it's systemic and institutional. It's not a personal thing. We're going after one particular person. Although that particular person or people may be perpetuating certain things that shouldn't be, that's unethical or shouldn't be done in the media. But there has to be a way to do it to go after people, not go, not go after people, to sort of change <laughs> go after me. <laughs> I'm not really helping with the idea of saying I'm radicalized, am I? <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Last question on this, which is do you, as a writer, interested to know if there are things like tricks of the trades that you have picked up when it comes to either navigating the business or way of storytelling that you're like, these are my rules and these this is how I'm going to function. When it comes to storytelling, one thing I tell, whenever I work with writers or anything, one thing I tell them is always say, like, don't, don't, I always tell people, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. How they interpret vulnerability is completely up to them. The reason why I say that, because so often as writers, we're worried about who we're writing for, making, want, wanting them to like what we're writing, where it shouldn't, should, should be the other way around. The writing is such a personal deeply personal experience that what we write has to be is almost like an extension of yourself rather than just a piece of paper that it's not a press release statement basically it's not something to sort of cover the, the facade when it comes to writing it, it's, it is deeply personal and, it's, and your writing has to be personal in some way how far you go with that is completely up to the, completely up to the writer themselves but i feel like some of the most compelling pieces of work that I've ever read I've ever read and some of the some of the most widely read articles that I've ever written and been published have been some of the ones that been really really personal and because you know you, it's, it's very easy oh people won't relate to this people won't relate to this but it's you'll be amazed by how many people will find some parallel to your experience regardless or some small thing in a lecture today just like, oh my god that happened to me as well or they'll agree with something 100% finally someone said the word that I couldn't I couldn't find the eloquence to say myself so yeah that's I think not being afraid of vulnerability is one thing when it comes to writing. Another thing is uh, not to be afraid to ask uh, stupid questions. Because that does happen in the line of, that does happen in journalism. I mean, sometimes some questions are so blatantly ignorant. But and when a person asks them, they just know they're being ignorant or they just they don't or they don't realize it. But sometimes if you learn from it, that is the most important thing. So mm-hmm. right now we're seeing in the media constantly, constantly journalists are asking Palestinians, do you condemn Hamas? Do you condemn Hamas? Will you condemn Hamas? That for me is an ignorant question because, and these journalists know what they're doing when they're asking that question. But is it a stupid question? I mean, it probably is. But it's a different, it's a difference, I think, being, between being willfully ignorant and naive and not knowing what you're doing. And there have been many times that I've been naive and asked questions and I've, and I've sort of learned from it, learned from my mistakes and, you know, apologise if I have to and stuff. So I think the learning curve is, is an important part of journalism because, you know, you can't expect to, you're just one person and you're expected to report on so many different people from different walks of life and different experiences to you. And knowing how to do that with sympathy, and not with empathy and nuance is really, really important. And 
add paradigmatic experience, I feel like asking stupid questions is going to happen. But I think the important thing is that you learn from it rather than be willfully, willfully ignorant and let yourself insert and insert yourself into the story some way, which is what, what happened quite often with uh, in Western media. So, yeah, does that, that, that two or three words? Two. Oh, you want to give a third one? A third one. Ah, oh, yeah. Back check. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just definitely like you know, I'll be always asked to be paid. I mean, I, I don't ever, don't ever accept being asked to write for free, um, unless you have a very good reason to, or there's a very good reason why you're being asked to write for free. But if it's like a well-known publication, or this, this publication does have a budget to pay writers. They should pay you. And this whole excuse of, oh, we don't have a budget. And then you see them ad- getting advertising, advertorial, advertising deals, all these companies. And you're like, no, oh, don't call, I'll call bullshit on that. Yeah, so just never, ever accept free labor. Is there a union? Because for actors or for performers, there's like a base rate. Yeah, um, yeah, there is one for a journalist, uh, the National Union of Journalists in the UK. I think there's something there about base rates. I haven't really, I've only, I only became a member six months ago, seven months ago. With my old job, which wasn't really a thing, but with my current job, it was definitely something more worthwhile. But I'm pretty sure, I mean, I know with the unions that I was part of back in Australia, they're definitely based rates. They sort of outline in their documents and update every year in accordance with the free uh, inflation. I'm pretty sure the NUJ has the same thing. I'll, I'll be very surprised if they didn't. Yeah, I mean, every union does, I guess. So, yeah. There's a lot of interviews, there's a lot of coverage on the Arab Square. <laughs> and I was even in one of the talks which you did. I'm interested to know the technical process, which is how did you pitch to different publishers? Did you pitch to different publishers like you already have an idea? How did you curate what orders and things like that? And how much when each writer had written, did you go back, maybe write more, less? First thing I did when I had the my proposal ready, I went and found, I went to look for an, an, uh, an agent. Because I know the UK publishing industry, or 95% of the time, you need an agent to sort of get your foot in the door with the publisher. So I did that first. I sent countless emails to all these different agents on a nightly basis for about two or three weeks. And I sort of wasn't hearing back from so many of them. And I just got, became disheartened after a while. And I stopped. I think I sent out the equivalent to like 50 emails over the course of three weeks to different agents on both sides of the Atlantic. It was getting it was a very much copy-paste job, but I had to readjust the email to match the agent according to their bio on the website and what they're looking for. Yeah, so there was that. So I did that first. And then about maybe three months after those emails, I got, I got several rejections. Most people never responded at all. Finally, my agent came through and she was like, and went through my junk email as well. I'm so glad I checked my junk email. She was like, we'd like to have a chat with you. So I jumped on a call with her and then, um, yeah, now, now she's my agent. And then she, so I sent her the pitch and she, we, we worked up my pitch a little bit. She said my pitch was great, but there was some stuff that I needed some fixing up before they started, before they started pitching to the um, publishers. And that happened, uh, they started pitching to the publishers at the end, towards the end of 2020. And then Saki came on board in June 2021. By the end of June, I signed the contract with them. So, and and even with my agent, it was really great to have them on board because they, they combed through my contract to make sure everything was above board. And it was. But it's good to have that because I would not have known all the legalities, all the ins and outs of what how contracts should work. And they helped sort of, you know, yeah, it was, it was definitely a helpful thing to have. And so on this on the proposal that I wrote, uh, that Saki had, it was like the, a page and a half description of what the book would be. 
the first part was about what the book was about, like about two thirds of the first page was about what this hour of was about. I had a different proposed title at the time. It's just the first third, I guess, was talking about what this hour of is going to be about and why it's important and gave contextualized in the current events at the time. And by the time that my agent picked it up, there was that time when uh, it was shortly after when uh, Sada Hagazi had committed suicide when she was living in exile in Canada. So my agent recommended I update the proposal to contextualize her passing away in there. It was only like an extra line. It was all it was on top of all the other stuff that I had mentioned. But it was very, very current at that time. It was very big and topical. So there was, and then the the other the other part of the the next third of the proposal was a bit of a description about me, about why I should be the editor and why I'm qualified to be the editor and how I, why I would make this a good book and an interest and this book would sell, et cetera, et cetera. The final third was about uh, talking about convincing the publisher that this book would do well and literary events would do well in sales. It would, because this, and, and you have to explain why it would do well. And my reason was there's nothing like this has been done before. It's a very, it's the first of its kind. This, this is exactly how you can market it. And uh, and then and then also a list, of potential, a list of potential contributors who could write. I was very, very, a very, very brazen thing for me to do because most of these potential contributors I had not approached at that time. My publisher recommended I get at least three or four of them come on board as a yes, as a tentative yes. And then once the publisher comes on board, we can sort of talk, go in for further details with them. So I put those three or four tentative yeses on, but everyone else, I was like, I haven't approached them. I've been hoping they'll look right for us. I'm going to list them in. And then, and funnily, funnily enough, I did approach them and more than half of them ended up saying, yes, they were right. And they're in the book now. So it worked out for the best. And that was a proposal. And then after Saki accepted it and we signed the contract, I had a meeting with them and we talked. And that's when we just started on the first meeting happened and we just started on this hour between. We sort of, we had a bit of back and forth. There was all these titles and stuff. I feel like this hour between was the most impactful one. Very, very direct into the active voice. And this is the thing with journalism is that the active voice and the passive voice. And I feel like this hour between was very much in the active tense. It not, doesn't sound passive at all. I wanted, it was very important that it's it, it, it active like that. And then we talked, to, and then, then they said, okay, all these other, all these contributors listed and all the the long list of names you had on you have on your iPhone notes app, all these potential writers put on an Excel spreadsheet on the Google Document Cloud and we'll share it so they know so we sort of they could see my progress as I emailed them. I sort of marked it as a yes, emailed them, approached them, invited them, etc. So July, most of July, well, by that point it was like end of July. I started I emailed all the potential contributors. I think I, I think I emailed about 45 people, potential contributors, and they're all from all over the world, different times. I had to make sure I, could, I also had to get their emails before I emailed them. So there was that as well. Um, a lot of sliding to people's DMs on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> yeah, so there was that. Yeah, and then that was like the technical process. And then I just sent the invite out. I said, if please, the, the submissions are open, I'd love to hear from you. The deadline is uh, end of October. It was about three months from then. So I had three months to produce a particular uh, piece that they wanted. I gave them an update in early or late September or early October. So, so the deadline was November, and I gave them an they gave them an update in the end of September when funding from our Council of England came through for for Saki, and that just meant I we were able to pay the writers more money. So I gave them an update. So hi guys, one more month, good news. Ask the Council of England accepted Saki's grant application. So um. You get more money if you, you know. Yeah, and then come November when the deadlines rolled around, pieces came through. So I had to choose 18 of them, unfortunately. Not everyone submitted in the end. And the reason why we decided to go for targeted invites, targeted approaches rather than open call, was one, I had a full-time job. There was no way I was going to keep on top of all these emails coming through from an open call. And two, it would, it would, it would 
run the risk of making this book very much, very much, it would run the risk of making the book very much in a male dominated or Egypt dominated or Lebanon dominated. Well, I really wanted to sort of try and balance it out as much as I can. And not just that, but also it doesn't want it to be, doesn't have, it doesn't have to be lesbian and gay. I wanted to make sure there were non-binary and trans voices as well. Um, and bi voices. It's so important to have that because there's a lot of bi erasure. I think that those are some of the reasons why we did that. And even when I when I approached 45 people, only about 22, 25 ended up submitting. I don't exactly remember the number. And I had to choose 18 for budget reasons. I would have loved to have included everyone, but I couldn't. See, and then pretty much December in the run up to Christmas, I had to take some days off work annual leave and just to spend some time editing these submissions and reading through them and deciding which ones I wanted and then with back, a lot of back and forth with me and the publisher then I'm I, I, yeah, I'm going way over the I'm talking about not just the pitch anymore <laughs> no I love it because I'm interested to know how the relationship worked between you and the writers which is being like sensitivity versus I feel like you can oh, be more yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The sensitivity thing was a very big thing. And I feel like, not just that, I, just feel like I had a massive responsibility in making sure these writers' stories are respected. But at the same time, I had to find ways to enhance it to the best the best version possible. And I was also very conscious of stepping on the writers' egos as well. This is, this is someone like me who has an ego himself. I totally get that. Luckily for me, all the writers were very, very receptive to my constructive criticism. Um, there was no, there wasn't um, any tension or anything, and and I and even said, look, these are all suggestions. You don't have to take them all up. These are just my suggestions. I mean, we're we going to submit your, we're we going to submit your um your chapter. These are just suggestions to make your chapter even better. And um, I think this sort of helped in sort of making sure the trust was maintained and that you know there was never any real tension. Really, luckily for me, I, was, I feel very privileged to be able to say that because I know a lot of editors don't experience that. There's a lot yeah. of <laughs> Ego clashes, and I've never felt that. And yeah, and it just even when I when I when I sent those emails out to all the writers and explaining what I was looking for, I did make a big point in the email to say, you know, imagine you're writing for yourself. Um, don't worry about pandering to what people expect of you. Just write about what you want to write that you feel like it had not been shared anywhere. This is your chance to publish to have something published that has never been published anywhere else for whatever reason. And I don't I don't expect them to sort of talk about being queer and Arab in such direct terms the whole time. I said, it can be indirect, it can be like subtle, but it is the overarching theme, you know. As long as they tied it to that theme somehow, it worked. And it had to be non-fiction as well. That was the other hard rule. It had to be non-fiction. So yeah, I guess, yeah, it was it was a really interesting experience. It's, it's something I would love to do again. I'm not sure if it's something like a part two, if this was something else, I don't know. But it just made me realise how much I enjoy being an editor and how much I enjoy creating that space for writers to share their stories and, and not waiting for people to give us that space. Here I am actually creating the space. And of course, I had to wait for a publisher to come on board. There's the irony, there's the irony there, I get it. But Saki has always been very progressive in that sense. And it, it just worked out their own by Lebanese family. And they're very progressive for publishing, publishing house as well. A lot of um, Arabic publishers would never have given us that space. I think it was the, the right home for it. They were very, very sensitive. And when I when I edited it and I made sure the publishers, the writers were okay with the editor, and went back to the uh, my editor, Saki, I was like the middleman the whole way through. Even with their suggestion for the editor, they were very, very um, sensitive and, and, you know, culturally nuanced about everything they said. They didn't sort of question anything that was brought up culturally. They understood. They know it. They know everything. There's no need for me to explain everything. And they weren't, they weren't, there was no white explaining happening either. It was a very, very positive experience for me. And it's something that's very, 
I feel very privileged to be able to say. Oh, I was going to ask if you would ever self-publish, but you've just answered, actually. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, I, was, I was talking about before I sort of realised I was going off on a tangent. I realized no, I no, no. It's it's fine. Um, I'm interested to know yeah. two more things. First is, in a book that is so personal, the topic is so personal, and I know you've written your memoir, the chapter that you've written in, is it Australian, other... Uh, Arab Australian, other. Yeah, Arab, yeah. How did this process impact your own understanding on, let's just say, gender, race, sexuality, all of those things? Do you feel like there were things in there that some days you were like, when you read a chapter, you were just like, whoa? I guess it made me realise that I'm a big believer in pan-Arab solidarity. Now, I brought this up recently uh, when I was at the Philadelphia, when it's Philadelphia for the Palestine Rights Literature Festival. And it's suddenly become a big, big focal topic. I have to remind people, I'm not an academic, so please don't quote me word for word everything I say. Um, I'm not an expert, but I feel like pan-Arab solidarity is far more powerful than pan-Arab nationalism. And I think writing this, editing this book made me realise that it's just, there's so much joy in being able to celebrate our differences and being able to sort of uh, share our stories and sort of realise that our differences are what make us rich and culturally rich and, you know, it's so empowering as well. It reaffirmed my belief that this homogenous idea of pan-Arab nationalism, which is very easy to fall into, is not a great thing because, and not only is nationalism a right-wing ideology, nationalism also, nationalism also goes hand-in-hand with Zionism. So that, that for me, I feel like the solidarity that come, that came out of writing this book was really, really something that I want to see more of in real life. And I try to do that. I mean, I try to I try to go to other uh, events for from other people from the Arab world. And, and they're not necessarily always Arab per se either. They could be Kurdish, they could be Turkish, they could be Iranian, they could be Assyrian or Armenian or Coptic or Amazigh. So I think it's really important to sort of understand that our we're such a richly diverse region and being able to share our stories in a way that wasn't controlled by the white gaze or the white lens free from orientalism or free from orientalist perceptions and we just we just take agency and, and take full control of how we shared our stories without anyone interrupting it just made me realize how empowering that is for our community and i only realized how the empowerment that came from that after when the book came out and it's been flooded with all these positive feedback from people within the Arab community saying this book is amazing I've never read I've never felt so seen and and it's just like it's for them it's, it means a lot to have something written by Arab published by Arab edited by Arab you know so I guess it's very affirming it's probably the right word for it yeah I guess that the affirmation that came from that made me realize that pan-Arab solidarity is a really powerful thing to have. And we see that we see that every weekend. We've been seeing that every weekend lately in London anyway. And that solidarity isn't just restricted to the Arab world, it's, it's mostly the global south as well. And it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. Yeah, because that's one thing that I realized. And you know, I guess also with editing this book, just because I'm reading about all these editors' personal stories for the first time before anyone else gets to read them. I started realizing, oh, there's some parallels in my own life with some of these stories as well. It made me very aware of my privilege of someone growing up in the West with a Western passport, how easy it is for me to travel around the world. It's made me realize how I, mean, I always I always knew, but it just reaffirmed my belief that borders are violent. So it's just like even though our experience is so different and so diverse, it doesn't make me any less of an Arab just because I grew up in the West. A lot of that come, doesn't come to choice and there is no one right way to be queer Arab at all or Arab 
full stop. Of course, context matters. So if someone were ever to come up to me and say, oh, can you please describe what life is like as a queer person in Palestine? I would not be, I would say, don't ask me, ask someone else. Because I never grew up there. So I would never, that's, I don't ever want people to think that, you know, yeah, yeah, it just, I guess, just gave me permission to sort of say, yes, I can say I'm queer and Arab and not have to worry about this weird hierarchy that people impose, impose on us. But that hierarchy comes from people who don't belong in our community. Personally, intrigued to know what has been an overall challenge for you throughout this entire experience and what has been a special memory, a singular special memory that stands out to you through this entire experience. I this was an early memory. This was an early memory in the whole thing. It's one one of the first chapters that came in. I was reading it at my local cafe, and I bawled out, bored, boring my eyes out from the, her work because it really struck me. And it got to a point where the cafeteria were like, "Are you the cafeteria owners were like, are you okay? <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just reading. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then like, and then I just I got, got myself together. And she came down, she came back with another flat wine, put it on the table. She was like, it's on the house. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) A free coffee. Got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't go wrong. (laughs) And a challenge? This This is probably the only real challenge I had. Me coming from a journalist background and a lot of the writers come from non-journal backgrounds, being a sucker for deadlines and following deadlines all the time. Not for writers. Yeah, and not just the writers, the publisher themselves were like, oh, the deadline's just an idea, it's just a concept. I'm like, why did everyone tell me this? You don't think it's a deadline, but it's it's worth screwed. But no, it was like, I had to, I just, just the whole, I think the challenge was sort of, you know, whenever I came to this this side of career, I had to take off my journalist hat and put on the writer publisher hat because that's a very different industry to journalism. Um, and that was de- definitely a learning curve. I'm really glad I went through that because now the next book I write, I won't be so <laughs> angry about deadlines. <laughs> I feel like deadlines what would have worked. Well, actually, because you got the arts council, there's a deadline for that. I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, that's something that uh, Saki did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly they they handled themselves. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Yeah, because having done arts council projects, there are deadlines for that. Oh uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine. I mean, I don't know. These grant applications are something beyond me. Don't do it. <laughs> it is a mind field. A lot of your work had some things that made me think about activism, queerness, politics. Yeah. Especially, I really have to say, your article on pinkwashing, which I knew and understood, but I was just, I wanted to ask you this question, which I don't know if it's phrased right, but is being queer, do you think, our sexuality, our identity, political or an activism, let's say? So is is, is being queer a political thing for me? Yeah, because I often felt like it's used in those contexts to write legislations and to to maneuver certain spaces when it shouldn't be that. And why is it that it's like that? I'm very, very conscious whenever I use the word activist or activism because I don't, I don't, I don't identify as an activist at all. I mean, I don't organize. Um, of course, I go to protests, but that's attending. That's not. I'm not organizing those protests. I'm not. You're not going to see me there on the streets leading these chants. And but I am an advocate. So I think that's. I think that's, that's a bit of a difference between being an advocate and an act- activist. So I definitely. I, do see myself as an advocate. Maybe through my writing, people might be some a form of activism. I guess. I mean, I don't know. Is is this? It's a very very tricky thing to say. I, 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 
I'm very conscious of hijacking the term because I know I I don't I don't feel like I've earned the stripes to say that yes I'm an activist. I don't I just don't feel comfortable to say uh, for me to say that I feel like I'll be hijacking some that 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 whole concept of activism. So, but yeah, but definitely being queer is inherently political anyway. I think it's just a matter of choosing what you do with that ident what you do with it really. So just me, just our existence as queer people, whether we like it or not, is political because it's it, it's a threat to so many people's ideas of what a heteronormative lifestyle is. And here we are existing, kissing people of the same sex or kissing people of any sex or whatever, whatever, and just challenging these ideas of love and sex and stuff and making people realize this is actually quite normal and natural for us. That is very political. And it's a great thing. And that's not, not political in the sense that, you know, we're binary of poor or you're the labor. That's different. For me, being Palestinian queer together is it just adds that a whole different layer because not only am I dealing with pinkwashing and Zionism, I'm also dealing with homophobia within my own community and homophobia in the mainstream community. There's a whole whirlpool of shit <laughs> um, you've got to navigate. And I guess for me to cut through that is to, I just have to sort of know where I stand on my principles and stick to those principles and be proud of sticking to those principles. I am. I, I, I will never back down until it's a better, until it's a better world, not just for me, but it's a better world for everyone. Because that's what I want. So I guess my political stances is probably more forthcoming. It's probably more blatant than other people's. But even if I weren't political, even if I could be someone like DJ Khaled, who just exists as a Palestinian <laughs> and pisses everyone off because it says nothing about being Palestinian, but everyone knows he's Palestinian, and that in itself was already political for him. He doesn't like that. I, we all know he doesn't like that because he's too scared about the money he's losing if he, if he says that, if he ever says anything. But he's a sellout. But still, the fact that I see him as a sellout makes it political already. So it's like you're screwed if you do, you're screwed if you don't, you know? I don't, I don't, for me, I don't see the political element as something that is a negative thing. For me, it's an empowering thing. It, it, it makes me, it knows, it means I know, it means I know what my place is in, in the world is. That doesn't make sense. Like, I know what my purpose is here. Consciousness, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just something on the back of my mind. It's very much at the forefront of my mind in so many ways. And it informs so many decisions and I do work the work that I do as well. Do you think people or the the LGBTQ community should be more aware of its uh I mean I, I don't think that is my my place to say. It's yeah. Because it's that like if I would say oh everyone should be more aware of it, that just ignores the fact that there might be some reasons why people can't be forthcoming for whatever reason. Um, you know, everyone's got their own individual stories, individual reasons, and we have to be conscious and aware of that. I don't, I don't believe in a one size fits all approach. At least, this is at least how I do. I would never go around saying everyone else has to follow my example. No, no, no way. I'm not like that. So everyone is. You know, I feel like everyone should, everyone should approach it however they want, if they want, and that's okay. But I think, but I think at the very least, I don't know how, but people should be at least aware. I'm, I feel like our community, at least in the in, in the UK and Australia, every 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 queer person I've met in the community is already aware that our existence is a political thing. Our our attending party, going to a party, kissing, pushing a boy in the dance floor, is already a form of protest. Because protesting isn't just marching on the street. There's so many ways to protest. Holding hands with my husband on the street is, in some ways, especially where we live, is a, is a, a very lib democrat area. 
But also, like London's quite open anyway. But for me, just I, it took me a while to get used to holding my hand, my husband's hand, in public. Because I would never do that where I grew up in Sydney, in the Western suburbs. It's very different. <laughs> so there's so many small acts that we can do that make up this whole protest of being queer and and be proud of it. And but it's everyone's choice, and that's fine. You know. Um, title of episode: Protest of Being Queer. Okay. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do quickly some games. This is rapid responses, and then we're gonna do some quick okay, games. Yep. Three things the industry could do with or without. Could do without middle-aged white men controlling the narrative of everything. We like them. No, we don't like them. <laughs> it could do without dehumanization of Palestinians, and it could do with more money for journalists to be paid properly, well, living wage. <laughs> Thoughts on the digital space, its structure, pro and cons? Well, for me, the digital space, the pro for the digital space for me is that I was able to connect with all the artists from this Arabic career through social media on Instagram and Twitter. So that was, that was definitely a pro for me. And and also the pro is the fact that we can publish this Arabic queer in digital format in order to allow people in the Arab world where it be illegal to hold the copy of a rainbow cover in public. They can dangle thought, it. That was so fascinating when you said that because it's colour. It's just a rainbow colour cover, yeah. But on the when they download it for their Kindle, it's, the, it's, it's quite, it's hidden basically. But... If, if they were to that, I had to go download directly from the publisher because Amazon, it doesn't come up on Amazon searches in these specific countries. I know, because of the rainbow. Yeah, the fact that they can download it directly from Saki and that's the digital, the, that's the pro of the digital there, I guess. I guess the con is, I mean, I don't know much about it. I'm still learning. Is the whole, the rise of AI. Um, like, is, is that, you know, are they gonna, is it going to make our work hard? Is it going to make it harder for us to find work because people are just going to resort to AI to do the work for them? Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm very suspicious, obviously. I'm taking everything that I hear about AI with a grain of salt. But it's just like, you know, I'm just still worried about the, the future of the industry. We all saw the, the writers and actors went on strike yeah. in Hollywood. Most of it, a lot of it was because of AI. So, yeah, it's going to make me wonder what, what, the future, what the future holds. One thing you would like for people to take with them, either having worked with you or known you just for a brief second or your entire life. Well, obviously, if they, if they didn't know, they'll know that I'm Palestinian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also, that I'm a hummus connoisseur. So I don't ever want to. I don't ever want people to tell me that they love pumpkin spice hummus because I will cancel them for life. If you're a connoisseur, I'm coming now. <laughs> this is on. But even like even like you know random flavors like ham and pineapple flavored hummus that I've seen been sold in America. I'm like, what? Question: I do beetroot hummus. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still got the still got the element of savoriness to it, so that's fine. Okay, thank you. But as long thank as like you still use chickpeas, because chickpeas literally means hummus in Arabic. Agreed. Okay, cool. Favorite part of the job? A bit hard right now because I'm with my work. You know, I'm pretty much knee deep in Gaza news. Waist deep, more like. So it's a bit hard to say what the favorite part of my job is. But I guess you know, just making sure these stories are shared and pro shared properly on social media, so people can see these stories. And what the advantage of working for an Arab outlet is that we can sort of challenge a lot of what what comes out in Western media with different narratives, our own narratives. So a thing you would like to impart on somebody, but you never were told. Like, don't give yourself an age limit date or expiration date of when you want to achieve something. You're never you're never too old to publish a book you're never too old to get your first article published anywhere i think once we and think and having that knowledge if more people understood that then that will also 
at the same time, combat this ageism that's so prevalent in the creative industry, at least, and even in journalism. So yeah, I guess you know, realizing that it's okay to take your time and learn the learn the ropes before you launch yourself into it. Words you would say to your mirror self. It's words of wisdom you would say to your mirror self if you looked in the mirror right now. I don't actually do this. I don't know why, but I just. Maybe I'm too much of a cynical person. That's it's okay. I'm You're just saying nice words. Nice words. You're looking in the mirror right now. What would you say to yourself? Well, often I say to myself, oh, your hair looks good today. So, oh, good, good happening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is my last rapid question, which is how do we celebrate queerness? I mean, just live life to the live life to the full, I guess. You know, don't let people don't let people drag you down. Don't worry if you're if you're gonna piss people off, then you're doing you're doing it right. Yeah. Got it. All right, quick games. So this is this section is called If I Was. If you were a movie, what would the original title of that movie be? I mean, the first thing came is like, you know, Quiff Hair, Quiff Life? Quiff Hair, Quiff Life. Give me three actors that would star in it. Eric Banner might be one when, when my middle age phase because I've been told I look like him. I used to say Johnny Depp, but up until, until about a year ago, he sort of crossed off the list for obvious reasons. <laughs> So I don't know. I guess probably Elijah Wood, who was in Frodo, who played Frodo. I've been told I look like him as well. And Daniel Radcliffe, if you give him a beard, apparently I look like him as well. Okay. Give me in two sentences what this movie's about. Me navigating my life as a queer Palestinian and fighting yeah. the Zionist bad guys. <laughs> and hair, whilst having great hair. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you were a drink, what would you be? Be a real bogan drink from the you know, you can take me out of Western Sydney, but you can't take the bogan out of me. And that would be Jim Beam and Coke. Lovely. If you were a clothing item, jeans. A flower or plant and which type? Flower, red rose. Food and dish and cuisine. Definitely Palestinian Lebanese food. Okay. Next question is what would you rather? Cookies or cake? Cake. Rich or fame? Rich. Critical acclaim or win lots of awards? Critical acclaim. Netflix or Prime? Netflix. Fairy tales slash mythological tales or real life stories? Real life stories. Physical newspaper or magazines or books or digital? Physical. Oh, by the way, I can't pronounce these last three. Is it Kafta de... I'm going to... Put... Well, hold on. Uh, Matlube. Okay, thank you so much. And is it nafe or matabak? Uh, knafe. And coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay, cool. The last one. Can you improv? I'm going to give you three words and yeah. you can either pitch me a film, series, or book. Okay, which one would it be? And I have given you the three words, but I'll type it in the chat if you want to. Or have you got them? I'm not good at symbolism. Okay, so what would you like to pitch me? A film, series, or book? Based on those three words. Yeah, you have to include those three words in your pitch. So I'll fuck story about a gazelle leaping. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Um, I have to give you 30 seconds on the clock. So you're pitching me a story. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> 30 seconds on the clock. And go. So it's a story about a gazelle leaping through the forest and, you know, the gazelle comes across a chanteur strolling through the woods and then the chanteur looks at the gazelle and is struck by the beauty of the gazelle and then the chanteur starts singing a song that's symbolism about the beauty of the gazelle. <laughs> I took that way too, literally. <laughs> that, this, there's a story in there is what I would like to see. I would like to see maybe a treatment next. 
Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I feel like there's something in there. I liked it. I liked it. All right, your last two questions and then you're done, which is you get to rant about anything and anything you want, but you must either start your rant with or end your rant with what the chai. Have you got something you want to rant about? 30 seconds? Yes, I easily got something. Yes. Okay, three, two, one, go. What the shy? Pink washing is bullshit because it constantly erases Palestinian identity. It erases queer Palestinians. And pink washing weaponizes uh, homophobia within the Arab community to drive a wedge between queer Palestinians and the rest of the Arab community. And um, not only that, uh, pinkwashing weaponizes queer identity as well to make it seem like the Israel is, is, is the best place in the world, but it's not because it's actually a war criminal. What the shy? <laughs> <laughs> so you got to keep it to 30 seconds because people then just go on. And your last question is, what is one thing you do for yourself that makes you feel joyful? And what's one thing you do for others that makes them feel joyful? That's really easy. Um, Cooking and food. Food is a love <laughs> language for me. I think that's something I inherited from my parents big time because it's a love, it's a love language for them as well. Sure. I find cooking for me is a, uh, whenever I've been super stressed or feeling anxious, the moment I get into the kitchen and start cooking, get into this routine, following the recipe, it's so therapeutic but also i feel like i'm drawn i'm getting that bridge connected between myself and my grandmothers who passed away and it's just like such a so weird like i'm not weird but it's hard to explain but also it just gives, gives me a sense of home away from home so and it, these are the recipes that i grew up with that my mum cooked and my mum learned from both of my grandmothers it's very very sentimental in that way so not only is it it's therapeutic it's therapeutic it's sentimental and me being able to share the food that i cook with everyone especially my husband it's just my way of sharing it's my way of communicating my palestinian identity to a lot of people it's like the basic way the easiest way to do it as well it's like the, it builds that bridge between across cultures and I love doing that. Well, everyone, that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed that. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss out. And don't forget to rate and comment on whichever platform you're listening this episode on. You can also become a patron and a supporter of the show by subscribing for as small as £5 or as I love saying $5.50 on Patreon. I will put the information of the artist on the episode and any of the links in the description of this episode. So make sure to check that out. But as of now, I will leave you as I always do. Breathe in and breathe out. <sighs> Namaskar, which means now I must go. That is copyrighted and I will sue. <laughs> Until next time, stay curious. <laughs>